0: of our letter here. Are Paul defending himself against the false accusations, and um, it's a rather impassioned plea. Dustin and I were, were talking just briefly this morning that it's kind of fluid in so many ways in this in this first seven chapters. You know, a book like Romans is very structured. You know, where it's kind of easy to study hard concepts but easy to study and present, and and uh, even some historical narrative. Sometimes is kind of you know it's real orderly and stuff. And this this has been a challenge with these first seven chapters of Second. Corinthians because Paul is just being very passionate he's defending himself he uses some run-on sentences and he kind of blurs one topic sort of into the next and he sort of introduces something and then comes back to it and it makes it rather difficult sometimes to sort of put that in to put that together to present it and do something with it and uh, this morning um, He does something that sort of steps aside from his defense to some degree, but it serves a purpose. So we're only going to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a small section. We're not going to talk much about Paul's defense today because this is a bit of an aside, but it's part of his defense, and I think it also serves as an example to them. If you remember, Paul was facing a challenge or challenges from the Corinthians, um, not just the false teachers who had accused him of a number of things, but it appears that at least some, maybe many of the Corinthians, um, their favor towards Paul has started to wane. And so Paul was under attack. He was being accused of things. He's defending himself against them. And um, we're going to see today something that he does that will ultimately serve as an example for them. And it's this idea of forgiveness. So we're going to talk about that today. In the first few sections, he talked about suffering. Um, Paul was obviously a part of that. Not only were the Corinthians suffering, but Paul had been suffering because of what they had done. So he talked about God's comfort and compassion. He's going to bring that concept of comfort up today as well. Last week he defended his general conduct among, among the um, Corinthians and his change of plans. Today, he takes an aside and addresses the issue, issue of discipline and forgiveness. The passage, there's no consensus on, on this passage today in terms of who Paul is talking about, but he's going to talk about a specific individual briefly. Um, and there's no consensus on who that is. One possibility, if you remember back in 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, Paul challenges the Corinthians because a young man had been having an affair with his father's wife, basically a stepmom. And so Paul had called on the Corinthians to um, not associate with that individual because he was claiming to be a believer but not acting like it. Some think maybe this individual is is the one Paul is talking to in this section today. Um, another possibility is that this may have been an individual who had sinned personally against Paul. Uh, I, I probably lean that direction myself, that this may have been an individual that had been accusing Paul, fa- Paul of false things. Um... Or it may be somebody we don't know anything about. So those are our possibilities here. The individual he's going to talk about was the man from Corinth who was having an affair with his dad's wife. Um, another possibility is it was an individual who had attacked Paul personally. Third possibility is that we don't know, have no clue who it is. And to be real frank, it's not all that important that we identify him because what Paul is going to teach us this morning are, just as a, are, are um, really the important things here and it doesn't matter who the individual was. They still will hold true. His ultimate goal in these seven verses today is to encourage the Corinthians to forgive and to comfort a brother in Christ who had sinned, had been disciplined, but then had repented. And so Paul's going to challenge us on that. So there's a number of principles. I think i identified identified... Uh, I think it's four principles here. Uh, three or four principles um, that we can learn from this today. So let's go ahead and start. Look at verse... Verses 5 and following with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was afflicted by the majority, or inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things." But one whom you forgive anything I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's our passage for today. So the first principle I see here, a bit hidden in the text if you will, is that one person's sin often affects the entire body. Do you notice what Paul says here? He's talking about this individual that sinned. And Paul introduces him here and says this in verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. We don't really know what his offense was that he committed, but some of the language suggests that the individual sinned against Paul specifically because a little bit later he kind of mentions some things. But notice he says not... To me, initially here, it's better understood as not only to me, or not to me alone. In fact, some other translations translate it that way. So what Paul actually says here is he's caused sorrow not just to me. I think that's a better translation of this. Which implies, if I say, well, he didn't just hurt me, but he also hurt you, what does that imply? That the individual hurt me. And so the offense that this individual had committed likely was against Paul. Notice he also says that it's not to me alone, or not only to me. Paul makes the point that this individual had harmed not just him, but also the church body as a whole. And so we see in here a principle that is often very true, that one person's sin isn't just usually borne by him, but that also hurts other individuals. Sometimes, obviously, if it's a sin against another individual, that's obvious to us, right? But have you ever thought about how your sin might actually affect the body as a whole in this case Paul says that it brought sorrow or grief to the body as a whole and that's oftentimes the case I think I shared an example last week about an individual uh, my home church um, who had begun to teach some things that were false um, began to put books into the library that were false led many people astray and when it came time to discipline him there was a lot of grief in that church a lot of people were hurt. I was hurt. Again, this was a close friend of mine. It had sent me off to seminary with my first computer that he purchased for me. Um, it hurt. There was grief and sorrow because of what he had done. So the first principle is that one person's sin often can affect the entire body. So we see here that this individual likely had sinned against Paul. But his sin extended to the church as a whole because of the sorrow and the grief that he had committed I'm going to give an example here another example of this from sort of modern times here and I want to be careful with this Um, Bill Hybels recently he's the pastor of Willow Creek Church up in Chicago a very large seeker sensitive church and uh, he's been accused of a number of things by women within the church some things that are I would say at least borderline sexual morality now We don't know if they're true. And that's not my point this morning. Um, It's not to accuse him or to suggest that he's guilty. My point is this, that there are a lot of people just because of that that are hurt. That is a hurting church right now. You know, now granted, in his case, he's the pastor, which, if indeed the sin is true, I think when a pastor sins, it has in some respects much greater impact on the church because he's the shepherd of the head and we see that with leadership um, so rarely do we find that when believers within a church family sin openly or publicly it isn't just some innocent thing it's not just the individual himself or herself it often oftentimes affects the church body as a whole and it's much well, like a family right when a dad does something when he sins publicly it impacts the wife and the children And so that's the first thing that we can see in this passage here is that um, oftentimes our individual sin can have an impact that extends far beyond just us or the individual maybe that we sin against. It can affect the whole church family, the whole church body. second principle we're going to find a little bit later here in verse 6 says this, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was afflicted by the majority. Let me state it this way. Church discipline is intended to bring about repentance and restoration. You know, it's interesting because in different um, times in church history, um, we can see how Christians sometimes respond with discipline as a form of, I'll call it, punishment. We watched The Crucible the other night. Um, it's about the Salem Witch Trials. It was a play that had been written back in the 1950s um, using the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory about what was happening with... Um, chasing down communist spies in the United States here is kind of interesting, but the whole point is that they use the Salem Witch Trials, but if you remember the, the Puritans and how they responded, you know, somebody's accused of witchcraft and they hang them. I mean, it was, that, it was that simple, you know? She's a witch! She's a witch! And so you hang her, you know? Now, granted, there were, I think, what, 20 people, is that right, Kimberly? I think 19 or 20 people that were hung, 150 that had been accused. But I think the the movie actually fairly accurately portrayed... Um, the way that church discipline was wielded within some sects of SECTS, some sects of Christianity, and oftentimes um, we kind of see it that way. But see, church discipline is actually something that's designed to bring about repentance and restoration of an individual. You notice here that. Paul actually says that this punishment was sufficient. We'll we'll touch on that in a little bit here. But he says here, which was inflicted by the majority. Basically what had happened was Paul had asked the Corinthians, had encouraged them to treat this individual in a specific way, to bring about repentance and restoration. We don't know exactly what that was, but if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. This is the individual that was having an affair with his father's wife, his stepmother. Paul says, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, in my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this... And though, or as if I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's thinking about restoration. His heart is that this individual would realize his wrong. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens up the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you will be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But listen to what he says. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world. In other words, I didn't tell you to avoid them. Or with the idolaters in the world. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? For those who are outside, God judges. Then he says this, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul's discipline, if you will, his church discipline for this individual, involved the church family coming together with a heart of restoration, but... Removing that individual from the church body. In other words, uh, I guess I'll call it disassociation. Meaning, if you're going to call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, but you're going to have or commit sexual immorality with your stepmother, we will not fellowship with you. You'll be removed from the church family. That's church discipline. Titus chapter 3, why don't you turn there with me. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He's he's talking there about false teaching. Then he says this, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. What do we have here? Paul again comes up with this idea or or shares this idea of separation he says when you have an individual within the church who's teaching things that are false misleading the flock he said it's time to reject that man but notice he doesn't say just reject him outright he says after a first and a second warning again because the idea there is restoration Paul's heart would be that this individual the factious man from Titus here that he'd come to his senses And we realized that what he's teaching is wrong. The the individual I'd mentioned a few minutes ago that we had to remove from my home church, we gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to understand that what he was teaching was false. I sat down with him on numerous occasions, would open the word with him, would attempt to talk to him, but he didn't want to talk about the scriptures. So we gave him ample opportunity, more than once, more than twice, before we finally had to say, you know what? Paul says it's time to reject the factious man, the one who's causing factions within the church. And again, that wasn't just over issues of what color do we make the carpeting, or what kind of songs do we sing. It was dealing with false teaching, things that were misleading the church. So again, we see there that church discipline involved separation. Do you guys remember Matthew chapter 18? Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 18 is probably the premier passage on church discipline. Matthew chapter 18... Verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Notice the restoration there. The whole point is, your brother's caught in sin, he sinned against you, so you go to him, and the whole point is to win him back, right? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So it says basically, well, if he he doesn't listen to just you, then take a couple people with you. Bring a brother or sister in Christ. Confront him. Let them see how he behaves. The idea there is maybe with two or three other brothers and sisters in Christ that he'll come to his senses. Well, if he refuses to listen to them, it says, tell it to the church. Well, that likely there and implies going to the elders or going to the leadership within the church. We have a brother. My brother or sister has sinned against me. I've taken a couple of witnesses with me, and those witnesses are here, and they say, you know what? Yeah, he's just being stubborn, hard-hearted. He's not changing his ways. He's continuing to sin against this brother or sister in Christ. So we've come to you as the church leadership to get some help. So he says to tell us the church says, but if he refuses to listen even to the church, here's the key, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, means the decisions that's made there, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What he's saying there is, whatever decision you come to as a church, you have the authority of heaven, the authority of God. says, again, I say to you, verse 19, that if two or three those are the witnesses and the people involved, the two or three on earth, if they agree about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you follow this process, if you have a brother or sister that sins against you and you confront them, and they refuse to to change, they they refuse to repent or express remorse, then take two or three brothers or sisters with you. If they do the same thing, then take them to the church. If they still refuse, then Jesus says, as a church family, it's now time to remove them from your fellowship. Treat them as a tax collector. Treat them as an outsider. They don't get to benefit from the fellowship of the church family. And he says, you've got the authority of me to do that. Jesus gives his own authority here to those individuals. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in each one of these, you see that the purpose of doing that it's to bring about repentance or restoration. It's not about punishment. It's not about the scarlet letter. It's not about rebuking somebody and walking away. It's all about restoration, but there is a process that we're expected to follow. And that is that discipline might be necessary, but that discipline is always to bring about repentance or restoration. Isn't that why we discipline our children? When you think about it? The whole point is we want to see a change in their heart. We want to see a change in their attitudes and their thinking. We don't want to just spank them and run away. We don't want them just to feel the heat of our wrath, right? That's not the goal. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. The author is writing about discipline, how God disciplines us. says it, verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, shall we not? much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. The point there is that the Lord disciplines us for our good and for our benefit, and that's the way that church discipline is supposed to work as well. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, or any trespass, in other words, any sin, you who are spiritual, which means spiritually mature, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You see the idea of restoration there again. So what's what's the point? Notice that Paul says, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Notice that Paul's the very first word in verse 6. What is that word? Paul says, sufficient for such a one as this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. That implies a number of things. The first is that it indicates that the discipline had been enough to bring about the individual's repentance. It had been sufficient. It did its job. The second thing that it implies is that it was time for the discipline to end. And I think that's key to our text today. It was sufficient because it brought about the individual's repentance. And second, it indicates that it was time for the discipline to end. Look at verse 7. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Third principle I think we can draw from this is that love and forgiveness forgiveness are expected when repentance is demonstrated. So Paul first tells us that sin within the church family affects the whole entire church family. He tells us, second, that church discipline then is intended to bring about repentance and restoration for the individual and healing. The third thing is that time comes when love and forgiveness are expected by the church family and by individuals when that individual repents and it's demonstrated. Notice Paul calls on them to forgive and to comfort their brother, it says. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort. Those two are important. The most common Greek word for forgive means to send away. That's literally what it means. To forgive a debt means to send away the debt. Okay. To forgive sins means to forget them. When God forgives us of our sins, He takes those sins puts them on Christ, they're taken away. That's usually the word that is used for forgive. But Paul does something rather interesting here. He uses a different word. And that word actually means to give or to grant somebody something graciously and generously with goodwill. Did you catch that? What Paul is saying here is not so much forget what they've done, but to go beyond that and to give them grace, to treat them graciously, to um, be generous towards them, and to do it out of goodwill. I think that's important. Um, Paul has in mind here not simply forgiving sin, but going beyond that to actively expressing goodwill towards that individual. That's also supported by the second word he uses here because he couples that with the word comfort, which literally means to come alongside the individual, to speak words of encouragement to them. So you see what Paul has done here? He's basically said, okay, there's this individual that's sinned against me in the church. It's caused sorrow in our church, which means he's also affected you. I called on you to discipline him by... Likely based on what we've read elsewhere, separating themselves from him, not being willing to just put your arms around him and welcome him into the family. And now he's called on him to not just forgive, but to encourage that individual, to be gracious and to be kind to him. You know, it was interesting. I was sitting in church one day when I was in seminary. This was before I had started pastoring my first church, and there was a I had started a college. Uh, ministry and I was running a Bible study for college students and um, there were a couple of people that had been in that and they were all sitting in front of me in church and when the service had ended um, the women that were all there in front of me started talking about a male friend of theirs that had been a student at Grace that had gone off and become a teacher he'd gotten married um, but he had was at this point committing adultery with one, with another teacher and so they, had, one of the women and girls had shared that. Had you heard about this? And I was rather startled by the response because the response was, oh, that poor guy. I can't believe... And I just, oh, I want to I call him and do you have any contact information so I can get in touch with him and tell him how much we're praying for him and how bad we feel for him. And I'm listening to this and thinking, did I, just, did I just hear this right? This guy committed adultery against his wife who happened to be a friend of yours. And the only thing you're talking about here is how bad you feel for him. And so I kind of spoke up and I said, "Guys, um, why why do you feel so bad for him? Oh, because we just can't imagine what he's gone through. Like, how come we're not talking about his wife? How come we're not talking about maybe somebody holding his feet to the fire? I mean, obviously we should want this guy restored. But it was just interesting. The perspective was was completely warped. There was no there was no concept, and and they actually thought I was being somewhat offensive by suggesting." that maybe what he needed was some good discipline from his fellow brothers or sisters in Christ to bring him to his senses. He was still committing adultery. It's not like he had done it, confessed, and and that's why they were hurting for him, because what's he going to do? And we feel so bad for him. And I was puzzled by that. Because Paul says, don't associate with a brother who does that. They might have done him more had they thought more biblically on that, they might have worked towards trying to restore him through dealing with it properly instead of just uh, wrapping their arms around him and feeling bad for him. The first purpose, Paul's going to mention three of them here for sort of reaching out to individuals after they express repentance and... And remorse, he says this individual has been sufficient, therefore he's repented, he's expressed remorse. And Paul now says, now is the time to encourage, now is the time to love, now is the time to comfort. And he gives three reasons for that. The first one is that it helps ensure that the one who sinned and repented doesn't become overwhelmed with sorrow. Notice he says in verse 7 there, I'm going to actually read from the NET because I love the way the New, New English Translation translates this. This will keep him from being overwhelmed by excessive grief to the point of despair. When an individual genuinely repents and experiences remorse, there can oftentimes be that sense of despair. I can't believe I did that. The shame and the guilt that is felt because of what that individual has done. And Paul says, so to prevent them from grieving to the point of excessive grief or getting to the point of despair, it's time now for those that were offended to come to him and to encourage him, to comfort him, so that that doesn't happen. How hard do you suppose that is? (laughs) We can give an extreme example of a wife who's been offended by her husband who's committed adultery. How difficult, how, how hard that must be to go back to her husband if he's repented expressed remorse to now think about him and think wow I don't want him to be overwhelmed what he did was a horrible thing but I don't want him to be overwhelmed with grief you know it's interesting we were watching this movie The Crucible the other night and there's this scene um, how many of you are even from have any of the kids read The Crucible? no? Um, again it's about the Salem witch trials and some of the names are real it's sort of like a I mean, obviously, it's, it's made for, for, you know, it was a play, and it was made for, for a movie, so they take some liberties and whatnot. But there's basically one of the individuals, that, and this, they're real individuals, um, an individual by the name of William Proctor and his wife Elizabeth. And William Proctor was, was an individual who was raised within the church, but pretty apparent he wasn't saved. His wife appears to be a pious woman, however, a Christian woman. Well, he had commit they had a nanny, and he had committed adultery, with this nanny. Wife discovered it. But it appears, and at least the way the, the movie and the book portray it, it appears that he had repented of that. He had done the best he could as an unsaved individual, if you will. Um, they removed this, this nanny from the home. And um, he did what he could to try to, to win back his wife's love and trust and affection. And there's a scene within the movie where he's talking to his wife about that. And he makes some rather interesting statements. Um, And he does it kind of in an old English Puritan way, which means it's kind of hard to understand the English, but he basically looks at her and he says, you you say you've forgiven me, but your love is cold. Meaning, your words don't match. And it's, it's rather a challenging scene because here's a guy who had committed adultery, it's his own fault. But he's trying his best to show repentance and remorse to his wife and she has expressed, at least verbally, her forgiveness and she was gracious to him and kind. But he's saying, but your love towards me is cold. Well, what's really interesting is at the end of the movie, he actually was, was killed himself. His wife survived. She was pregnant. Um, even though she'd been accused of being a witch, she was pregnant so they, they refused to kill um, pregnant women because they thought it was a... The child wasn't guilty of the of the witchcraft. So she actually lived in real life. He was hung. But at the end of the movie, what they, and I don't know if this part is real or not, but at the end of the movie, um, they're talking. And she admits to him that her love had been cold. And it's just this startling scene um, because so oftentimes that's the way we behave. Where we will forgive but then we sort of still act and behave like we really haven't ultimately forgiven. And that's it's comp- understandable, because think about it. And in, in her case, how difficult that must have been. A violation like that. But yet, that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do here. And it's so that that individual doesn't become overwhelmed with grief or sorrow to the point of despair. The second purpose that we're supposed to love and comfort individual individual after repentance and remorse, is found in uh, the next phrase, verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. The second purpose is that it reaffirms love, which is a hallmark of Christianity, is it not? Um, we are to love, and in fact, we are to love even our enemies. If we're called to love our enemies, then obviously we're called to love those within the church even when they've sinned against us. And so one of the things Paul says is that when an individual sins and they express repentance and remorse, we are supposed to go beyond forgiveness because it demonstrates not just our love, but ultimately the love of Christ for that individual, which is key and critical. I think I shared with you last week that when we would spank our kids when they were younger um, one of the things we would do is hug and pray with them afterwards because we wanted them to sense that this doesn't cut off our love from you you know we didn't want it to end there with the spanking we wanted to demonstrate to them that no we still love you and we'll forget about this as a way of affirming our love for them the third purpose is found in 9 through 11 to this end also I wrote, wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven ever anything. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And here's the key, verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken uh, taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. In other words, the third purpose, the third reason we're called to do this is so that we don't give Satan a foothold. When we forgive in word but then we don't behave like it, Satan's aware of that and can get in there and can twist and turn and pull and we see that all the time. We see that in marriage relationships where husbands and wives maybe forgive but don't forget and Satan gets in there and just twists and turns and pulls them apart. We see that with friendships. Have you ever had a friend that somehow wronged you or Maybe you wrong them and things go sideways and destroys the relationship. Satan just gets in there and tweaks and turns that. So, Paul had asked them to discipline this individual. He said they passed the test, they did what they were supposed to do. But then he calls on them now to go beyond just forgiveness, to love and to comfort, to encourage. Remember the word there, paraclete. It's the idea of coming alongside, to encourage. You know, it's funny because that's what the rest of the scriptures teach. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says, Be angry, or in some translations, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give, what? The devil an opportunity. Why does the Lord tell us that husbands and wives and friends aren't supposed to go to bed bitter and angry at one another? Because Satan can take advantage of it. It can cause that to fester. Paul says that we're not unaware of the schemes of Satan here. The Bible calls him crafty and cunning. 1 Peter says he he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. In other words, um, Satan is always looking for an opportunity to tear apart God's people. And when we refuse to not only forgive but to ultimately engage in encouragement and love towards a brother or sister who's repented... We open the door for the enemy to then devour and destroy. But when we forgive and encourage and love, we slam that door shut, do we not? <coughs> so, what do we do with with all of this? Again, Paul kind of takes an aside. What I find striking about this is this individual had sinned against Paul, the Corinthians had sinned against Paul, and we have this discussion of how to respond when people sin, are disciplined. Repent, express remorse. And Paul says here in the text that he had already forgiven this individual for their sakes, meaning the Corinthians. He did it as an example. And he was now calling on them to do it for this individual as well. So in the midst of Paul himself being injured, being sinned against, being being persecuted, being accused of all kinds of things, his heart and soul is still on the Corinthians and this individual. I wonder sometimes how many of us would have the same perspective. You know, when we're sinned against, we kind of go into this little mode of self-protection or um, what's best or right for us. And Paul's whole heart is on the Corinthians and on the individual who had sinned. His heart was with seeing this individual restored and not being overwhelmed with, with guilt or anything else. That makes me think, too, of how we as a church oftentimes respond to stuff like this. Um, there's a number of different responses. Um, I've already kind of mentioned one with these young ladies that I had seen at church. Um, oftentimes when we see sin within the church body or we see an individual who sins, sometimes we just ignore it. We think the issue will go away, don't we? Yeah, it's no big deal. Just forget about it move on. Some see any form of corporate discipline as unloving or judgmental. That's another response. How can you do that to a brother or sister in Christ? That's just mean. You know, we've got to love them. And that was kind of, when I, had, when I had spoken up to these women that were in my Bible study, there was a couple of guys sitting off to the sides. I just think they were, if they would have had phones, they would have been playing on them. But they weren't all that interested. But, um, but as, they, as they sort of talked, when I had said, boy, I think there's a different perspective on some of this, they thought I was unloving by suggesting that maybe somebody needed to call them out. Well, who are you to judge him? Gee, I don't know. The Bible tells us that we ought to be doing something here rather than just putting our arms around him. Um, so some think that corporate discipline or confronting a believer who's sinning, oh, that's their issue, we should just stay out of it, we don't have the right to judge. You know, Judge not, lest you be judged. You know, let moves without sin, throw the first stone, so we don't do anything, right? Still others are more than happy to point a finger and... I mentioned the scarlet letter before, I think Kimberly's mentioned that don't how she not you say you hated the book or something, you know, um, brand this woman with a giant S on her chest, you know. Um, the scarlet letter. Was it actually an S or an A? It was not it? It was an A, wasn't it? Yeah, the Scarlet letter. Uh, a for adultery. Um, so that's sometimes a response. That's the way it was with some of the Puritans. Um, none of those are proper biblically, are they? Church discipline is always about restoration. It's about remorse. Um, It's a way of coming alongside a brother or sister in Christ to encourage them to get right with the Lord. That's why it's done. And so our attitudes ought to be humble and gracious. But it's pretty clear that they need to be firm. But when that individual does respond, um, there should be more than just... Forgiveness in word. And I think that's sometimes where the church struggles. You know, we're... Sometimes can be good at the whole discipline thing when it's bad enough, you know. Um, But I think we sometimes struggle then to sort of wrap our arms around the individual. I think sometimes maybe we struggle with that as individuals when somebody sins against us and they're willing to come to us and finally say, you know what, yeah, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it. Um, yeah, we say we forgive them, but how do we really ultimately treat them? I think that's a a challenge sometimes. Like I said, I've seen relationships destroyed over stuff like that. And um, it's not appropriate, ultimately, because Satan can use that. I'm going to go ahead and just, I'll I'll wrap it up with that, just um, some food for thought for us. Um, Again, the whole point is that God is in the business of restoring individuals, and so church discipline is designed for that, but so is our forgiveness afterwards. It's designed to help that individual be restored and brought back into fellowship, and that's exactly what Paul has in mind with this individual from 1st, or from 2 Corinthians here.